Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week is the editor that takes care of Nature's Worldview section on the line from San Francisco. It's early in the morning for you, Monia Baker. Monia, how are you? I'm doing well. Good morning or afternoon. So Monia, just to start with, listeners to Coronapod won't have heard your voice before. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Nature, what we mean when we say the Worldview section. So the Worldview section are these very short 850 word personal columns from individual researchers and thought leaders. And they are calls to action that are sort of steeped in someone's personal expertise and experience. And they're really varied. It can be everything from why we need telescopes on the far side of the moon to the public health studies that are going neglected during the pandemic. Yeah, and perhaps unexpectedly, it's public health that we're going to be talking about today, specifically a worldview written by an evolutionary virologist called Aris Katsourakis that you commissioned. And it's all about endemicity, this concept that we've talked about on Coronapod many times before, that a virus or an infection more broadly can become what's called endemic in a population. Now, often when people talk about endemicity, they talk about it as a sort of end state. And they also tend to compare it to things like the common cold. There is this implication that an endemic infection isn't a dangerous infection. But in reality, neither of those two things are true. An endemic virus isn't the end, and neither is it necessarily not dangerous. Tell us, what is it that inspired you to commission this worldview in the first place? I had seen a lot of articles, mainly from politicians saying, we are going to achieve endemicity, you know. And of course, what that really means, if you're looking for something to become endemic, is it means that you've given up on eliminating the virus. You've given up on eradicating the virus. And I think from the beginning, people knew that that was a very hard goal. But that's kind of last place. And I think that people were basically saying, oh, it's endemic. And that meant life goes back to 2019. 
And that's not the case. So I'd seen a lot of public health writing about this. And I thought, well, let's see if we can take a broader perspective. Let's see what an evolutionary virologist would have to say about what does this really mean? And so Eris Kotsourakis had written a very articulate Twitter thread that a colleague had forwarded to me. So I asked him if he would talk with me with an eye to writing a column. And one of the first things he said to me was that there are many, many routes to endemicity. There are many, many places where being endemic can fall, and a lot of them are not very good, and that humans have the means to pick which trajectory evolution takes. Quite often, I think this idea that an endemic virus is a minor virus kind of comes to the fact that when people define endemic, they, they use examples like the common cold, which isn't kind of a minor virus in the grand scheme of things. But that comparison does it a bit of a disservice. I think it'd be really useful to start with to kind of get an evolutionary virologist's definition of what endemic means. Yeah, so an endemic infection can be both widespread and it can be deadly. So malaria is considered endemic. Malaria kills 600,000 people a year. Tuberculosis is considered endemic, and it kills and sickens a lot of people. Smallpox was endemic until it was stamped out, which just makes you think about that in a whole, whole new way. Yeah, it really does put it into perspective when you take the comparison of the common cold off the table and instead you insert comparisons of malaria or polio, tuberculosis, smallpox. I mean, that really does sort of change in my head the way that I'm thinking about what an endemic virus looks like. And I guess from a virologist perspective, all endemic really means is that the spread of this virus is static. It's not growing. It's not falling. It's just that the number of people that can be infected balances out the reproduction number. So there's a degree of population immunity. There may be other physical barriers, for example, that stop the spread or geography. The virus grows at a certain rate. Those things balance out. So it just becomes something that exists in the population. It doesn't get bigger. It doesn't get smaller. But in terms of how serious that is, well, you look at malaria and that may be a static number, an endemic virus. But the impact is vast, not just on mortality, but also on things like children's education, for example. So it's a more complicated picture than just, oh, it's a virus we all just manage. It can mean a whole load of different things. And of course, importantly, it may be static in terms of its transmission, but that doesn't mean it's no longer evolving. And we know that evolution isn't necessarily bad news or good news. But something that's often tied up with this idea of endemicity is the idea that somehow viruses evolve to be less deadly over time. And that's another worrying assumption to make. Alpha and Delta were more virulent than the strain that was first identified in Wuhan. And this idea that the next iteration of the of the variant is going to be less harmful is not borne out by observations. Sometimes it happens, but assuming that evolution is friendly, not a good idea. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I think that this idea comes from the idea that somehow the virus doesn't want to kill people because if it kills too many people, it won't spread on. But I remember very distinctly that our colleague Ewan Calloway described this notion as poppycock, in particular with relation to SARS-CoV-2, because most of the spread of SARS-CoV-2 happens before the symptoms arrive. So there's no reason, there's no evolutionary driver whatsoever for it to not kill people. And that is a kind of a myth that stays in people's heads. And it really links into this idea of endemicity. I mean, I think just as humans, we're hungry for comfort comfortable ideas. And so the idea that evolution is on our side is definitely a comfortable idea. I mean, the definitions are different, but I think that we're using the word endemic now 
in the same way that some people used herd immunity before, which meant if we do nothing, we'll still be safe. And I think it's dangerous to to rest on those kinds of assumptions. Yeah. And, and this isn't new at all. Like the battle to reach endemicity is something that's happened throughout human history. And we know that because we can see evidence of viral infections in our distant past in our genomes. Many viruses can insert themselves into DNA in order to be able to replicate in our cells. And various viral sequences have ended up lodged in the so-called junk parts of our DNA. But those battles certainly weren't without their casualties. And these sort of fragments of viral DNA really kind of represent battle scars from previous interactions with viruses. You actually put it really, really well. And I I think people are forgetting that people will die on the way to reaching endemicity and that this is somehow an acceptable sacrifice. It's an assumption that's not articulated because if you articulated the assumption, you would have to question it. And that's really the question we're facing right now with SARS-CoV-2. Tell us about some of the sort of routes we could go down, depending on the way that we fight this now, before we do get to a kind of an endemic status. Because I think many researchers do believe that we will end up with SARS-CoV-2 becoming an endemic virus. The question is, what will that endemicity look like? Exactly. I mean, I think a lot of public health measures are really important. I think vaccine equity, meaning that everybody can get vaccinated, even if they're not in a rich country, is important because anywhere that you have unconstrained viral spread is an opportunity for new variants to emerge. And those new variants are not going to stay in the community that they originated in, or rather it's unlikely that they will. So public health measures are important. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Iris mentions in the piece that the alpha variant was first identified in the United Kingdom, Delta was first found in India, and Omicron in Southern Africa. And all of those places were places where there was rampant spread. And so this idea of trying to introduce public health measures to reduce the spread, part of the reason to do that is to reduce the likelihood of variants arising, because that's the kind of thing that will knock whatever balance that we at any point reach, which causes the virus to become endemic, knock it one way or the other. I mean, we all saw how quickly Omicron spread across the world and Delta too. And uh, I mean, with Omicron, we, we were just lucky. Endemic itself is not a permanent state. The same virus can be epidemic, can be pandemic, and that depends on how immune people are. It depends on on how susceptible people are. It depends on their behaviors. So this lazy assumption that we will reach a stable place is not good for us. When we think about endemicity as a balance between the rate of spread and the ability of the virus to spread, the role of public health measures really comes to the fore. An endemic virus, while everyone is still trying to wear masks around the place, will arguably be causing less death and arguably causing less morbidity than a kind of an endemic balance where there are no public health measures in place. And so we need to think about where we want that balance to reach. And that's something that Aris talks a lot about in this worldview. And he makes a series of recommendations. He says, number one, we need to think about variants, which we've discussed. Number two, we need to think about treatments like antivirals and vaccines, both developing new vaccines, but also importantly, vaccine equity across the world. So there's an even spread of the vaccines that we have. And number three, we need to continue thinking about things like mask wearing, distancing, air ventilation, filtration. These things don't just go away because a virus has become endemic. Instead, what they do is they determine the balance of that endemicity. They don't just disappear when endemicity arrives. And that does not mean by any means that we are going to have to wear masks and stay away from our loved ones forever. 
but it does mean that we have to have some serious conversations about where the acceptable level is and what the acceptable compromises are going to be in society. Is there any hope, Monya? I feel like everything we've talked about here is really, really sad. It's like, oh no, let's take away that kind of, that, that sort of dream of let's get to endemicity and we'll all be fine, because of course that's not correct. Do we have any sense that we could have a positive outcome at the end of this? I feel like people were hearing this message. And if we can imagine all the bad possibilities, then we might actually have the motivation to take steps to cut them off. And given the amount of attention that this particular column has gotten, that does make me hopeful. Monya, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating to talk to you and only a little bit depressing. I hope you have a really lovely day. You too. You too. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 